Let's talk about the reaction to the book. Uh, what what was the reaction? You know, how was it taken? How was it received? And and how did that come to you? Well, it started out kind of slow. The uh, six months before my court, which occurred in I think it was December twelfth of two thousand four, it, it averaged selling seventy five books a month For, from its inception. So when the book when was it first published? I think it was November of um, 2002. Okay. And it just kind of bumped along. Okay. Averaged roughly, I don't know, I, I, I think maybe 75 books a month. Okay, so very slow sales uh, mm-hmm. at first. Yeah. More, more than Signature expected, less, right Right, what they expected? Uh, they were pleased with it. It went through two printings. Okay. And they, they regarded a book as a success if it sells 1,000 copies. Not that it necessarily makes money for George Smith, but... At least it didn't fall deadborn from the press. So right, right. So um, and so, did you start hearing from people? Did people start writing you? Did yes, you, did, they did. Uh, in fact, I would say I've had well over a thousand people in since the book came out three and a half years ago. Write me, email me, call me on the phone, come and see me. And what, Overwhelmingly, they're positive. So, what are the responses? Uh, thank you for uh, pointing this out. Uh, um, two inmates, white-collar inmates, said, my gosh, uh, if Joseph Smith can have all those problems, that gives hope for us. Interesting reaction. Right, right. Uh, people say, you've you've destroyed my faith. Uh, people say, uh, uh, I, can't, I can't deal with it. I, I can't face the alternative if this is true. You get, you get it all. What what about loved ones close to you, your siblings? Uh, uh, same thing. I have two brothers that completely uh, accepted it, and that's that's the way it is. And four who haven't read it, haven't read it at all, won't, won't read it. And how about in your ward? Or I mean, before any action was uh, taken, there was a it, number of people that read it in the ward once they found out about it because they known me. I had a certain credibility over there. I mean. I taught the gospel doctrine class for five years and 16 years the high priest. I think I was well regarded by most of them, almost all of them. So there were some people that read it and were very disturbed by it. Some uh, liked it. And did they talk to you about it and come say, why'd you do this? Or did anyone ever come Uh, to your home and say? Very few of them. Most of them, no. But most of them haven't shunned me or anything. I go over there and they, uh, you know, I don't think they want to talk about it because they know they don't know a whole lot about it and but uh on the whole i think they've they've been very kindly how, how does it make you feel that this book is held up by ex and anti-mormons as being a, a must read <laughs> i mean you say your intent you, you 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 voiced your intent at the beginning that your intent was to do what is right let the consequences yeah. follow now that you know that it's been embraced by ex and anti-mormons as being a must read does that give you any pause or regret? Does that make you feel happy? I mean, you know. Well, Signature Book thought this would be a, a big read for beginning college students because it it took everything from the last 40 years and kind of put it in one book. It has pictures and it's written for a, a, a broader audience. And I think that's the true take on the book. I thought it would have appealed to college students, and it has. 
but it's also had a, a, a um, appeal to to people that have felt a great deal of guilt for for not feeling comfortable with the church, and it's relieved some of their guilt actually that they found out, gee, it really wasn't like it had like the Mormon past, which was drum beated into my head. Maybe you know, it's not it's not what we said it was, and that's made them feel good. Not necessarily they go out and sin because of it, but just they felt relieved. I get letters from that. Yes, the anti-Mormons have run with it, and so is the RLDS community of Christ. They're using it as their textbook in Graceland University right now. Hmm. And uh, and then I also thought the book would have quite an appeal among uh, educated people, mm-hmm. and there's there's quite a bit of evidence to that. And I think because... Um, I've never never told one person that they ought to leave the church. I, it's hard to sit over there and listen to things that are probably not true. And you're you're active, right? You're yes. active in the church. Yes, I don't go to priesthood in Sunday school at this point in time. It's just too too painful in the in the sense of there's so much that's said over there that just isn't. It bothers me more than I thought. But I go to sacrament meetings, mm-hmm. and I, you know, I participate as best I. I'm allowed, and uh, but but it, it seems to have crossed all barriers of people, and it's and I pled with my stake president, my wife and I says, I don't, you don't know me very well, and why don't what's the big hurry here to have a church court? Uh, this book is pretty well at this point been read by professionals and people who know about these issues. I uh, says if, but the court is going to cause a lot of so, publicity. Yeah, how did you first hear about the court? You know that you were going to be got uh, a letter from the stake president the peer. Okay, you got a letter from the stake president that said I'd had a couple of preliminary discussions with the bishop and the stake president, and they I don't co- know they if co- it was they engineered from the top or not. The stake president says no, and they got. A number of complaints, both within the stake and outside of the stake, meaning the rest of the world, that this book could cause them some, uh, some, some, some damage. Had done some damage to faith, is the way the stake president put it to me. That's why they're holding the court. So the so the bishop and the stake president called you in, and you had interviews with them. I had a couple of preliminary interviews, and then they decided to hold the court. But they didn't hold the court until the book had been out for. A little over two years. This true Deseret book sold your book for a while? Yes, they did. Okay. That seems bizarre to me. How in the world did that happen? Well, they sold it online. I don't know that it was on the shelves. Okay. Um, but uh, BYU Bookstore always sold my book on the shelves and still does. Still does? Still does. The U of U Bookstore carries my book. There's a lot of, you know, Barnes & Noble and... So when you had these interviews with your bishop and stake president, did you ever discuss the, the merits of, of your book, the sub- content matter of your book? I mean, No, they, they, they just want to know why. They're, were they nice to you? They're was very, it? very nice to me. They're never really interested in the truth claims of the book, even at the at church court. In fact, it's, to me, you know, they divide up. I've been on a high council. I've been a high counselor. Uh, they divide the... High Council up six to defend the church, six to define, to defend me. None of the six that had, uh, were to defend me had read the book, hmm. and and my high councilman from my ward didn't even know I'd written the book. Hmm. And uh, 
only one had read the book was defend the church. So they, it wasn't about the book. It was about whether you're orthodox. And in that sense, it was a Galileo trial. I mean, when Galileo went before his inquisitors, he they, they weren't interested in whether uh, you could actually see moons around Jupiter through his telescope. They were only interested if he was orthodox. Some of them wouldn't even touch the instrument. He offers to look through it. You'll see him. Right. Not interested. We already know, you know. And so it was. It was a, in that sense a kind of Galileo trial that they really weren't interested in the truth claims, and that's the way it remains to this day. They just want to know if you're orthodox. Were you able to bring any friends or family with you, or uh, my wife sat through it, and my bishop was there. You're, I should tell the audience. And I had you, one witness, a BYU professor. Okay, I should tell the audience you've, you're you're remarried, so you're, yes, your I second remarried, wife. Uh-huh. So you're you're a bishop and a BYU professor. Okay. He was allowed in for part of the time to be a witness for me. So what can you tell us about how that went down? I mean, how'd you feel? What was it like? What what, what were some of the conversations or whatever you're comfortable talking about? Well, it was long. It lasted from 7 in the morning to 1 in the afternoon. So it was a six-hour thing, and that's a long time to be in there. Were you tempted to bring press or to try and do like a Thomas Murphy thing where you would— Oh, I was, I was in—they were— I had uh, Thomas Murphy himself call me. He wanted to hold a big vigil up in uh, Seattle. I had a, a guy here who wanted to have demonstrations around the Salt Lake Temple. Uh, I said, "No, that's not me. I don't. I don't want to do that." So that was called off. There was an email campaign and a lot of letters. I mean, a lot of them went to uh, to uh, President Hinckley and to my state president. He was kind of bombarded. I think he's still getting letters. Right. Okay. And so what was it like when you were there? It was long? Well, it was long. I mean, they, they, they read, you know, he acknowledged what the, the letter, the emails had said that were for me and some were against me. And, and he acknowledged some of the letters he had received from both within the stake and outside of the stake in different states. And, uh, and some of the farms people had, uh, I think, had taken upon themselves to to write some letters. And my, uh, the, per, the person who was in charge of CES wrote a letter. He had never met me. And if he had looked in the file and bothered to uh, to uh, f- discover the story that I shared with you earlier in this interview, he would have been much nicer. He just called me a hypocrite, and he read that letter. And then they read letters in support from my children, you know, of what kind of person I was. And then there was a... They're reading all these letters out loud while yes, you're sitting there? reading them out loud. Okay. Well, it's, you know, a representative sample. They read all my children's letters. And and so that went on for a couple of hours, and then... Uh, They're just reading and reading and reading. Yep. And you're just sitting there listening. Yeah, and I'm supposed to, at the end, have a one-shot response to this two or three hours of material. And so I did. I did the best I could, and... Uh, and uh, what did you say? What, can you tell us a little bit about what you said? I mean, sum, summarize it? Well, you know, it's been a couple of years from now ago. I would say that uh, Levina Anderson, within the week after it happened, she called me up and we had two hour and a half discussions on two different days. And she has got it all down. And one of these days, maybe it'll come out. But. Uh, 
And that's my clearest recollection because it happened right after, and she wanted to get it down, and I gave it to her over a two-and-a-half, three-hour period. And so, you know, as for what happened blow for blow, uh, one day I guess that will come out. Okay, okay. Uh, but it it was long, it was exhausting, and I tried to answer the best I could, and, uh, and I was told later I, they thought I did a pretty – pretty fair job of how I conducted myself, and I appreciated that. And, uh, and then they deliberated for an hour, and then they came back, and, uh, well, they, you know, they have one high councilman on each side, those who defend the church and those who defend me, you know, sum up what had happened and what they thought should be done and so forth. And then the stake presidency went in and and uh, discussed it for an hour or so, and then came back in the verdict. But it was long. And the verdict was disfellowshipment? Disfellowshipment, yes. And were you devastated? or? No, I think that was about what I expected. So you, you expected it? Yeah. And then that's when we were out, so when my bishop says, well, your bishop, or this stake president, as I know, has never excommunicated anyone. So I thought, and he told me that before the verdict, and that just kind of gave me even more confidence that that would likely be the outcome. In fact, maybe I, I should say something here, that uh, my bishop was a young high counselor in the stake that Levina Anderson was excommunicated in. Hmm. And he said to me point blank, if Levina Anderson would have had a stake president like this stake president, she never would have been excommunicated. Hmm. Wow. Hmm. So, what what were the consequences? What what are the consequences of disfellowshipment? Uh, you really can't uh, bear your testimony. You can't vote for sustaining anything. You cannot take the sacrament. You cannot teach. You cannot uh, hold any church positions, and so forth. Do you ever find yourself accidentally raising your hand and having to put your hand back down? Uh, <laughs> I've thought about it once or twice, but I've. Constrain myself. <laughs> and personally, uh, to the extent you're comfortable sharing, has it been hard to be disfellowshipped for you? Has it been devastating? Has it been not so bad? No. In fact, uh, this gets quite personal, but I think I'll say at least this much. Uh, I was really exhausted after the six hours, and I, would, I was advised not to talk to the media. They were all out in the front. They wouldn't let them stay on the church property. They had to stay across the street. But I really didn't feel like talking to them, and I was probably advised not to. I wish I would have said something to them now in hindsight. To the media? Yeah, I, at least something. So, some people have asked whether there was an agreement made where you were asked restrictions and no, limitations. No gag order. There was an inquiry of interest by 60 Minutes to have me on, but I think they were only interested if I was excommunicated. Right. I don't know all the details of that, but there was definitely one inquiry made to me on my computer from CBS. But the stake president never... Um... Never, no gag order, and he just says that you've been doing pretty good, so just continue as you've been doing, you know. And I says, well, I won't go on 60 Minutes, but it wasn't a slam dunk that I was anyway. But... Um, <clears throat> I've had, a, and so people think that I've had some kind of a gag order on me, but I have not. But I have been selective of who I've chosen to go with. I've been asked to speak 
twice at the ex-Mormon conference and turned that down. I had a guy from Florida who wanted me to come and speak on a Southern Baptist convention circuit, and I turned that down. <laughs> so I, I've had requests. I've I've been rather, I think, res- I, I mean, I've talked where I think that the people are responsible. I, I, I'm going to tell what I think happened, and it's just my view here, of course, and other people have theirs say. I did speak with Newsweek magazine. I never ended up uh, being quoted there. And I've done a piece with Frontline, which will uh, should appear this October or November. And I've done you. Right. That's it. Why? And, well, and I've done Van Hale, which is on the on the Incomparable Jesus book, right. which was designed to be a sequel to the to the Insider's view. I, I just didn't want to leave people hanging. In fact, the Insider's or the the Incomparable Jesus was designed to be in the Insider's view, but huh. the Signature didn't want to do that, and I'm glad they didn't because it gave me a chance to to have a better book. But but getting back to the the story, I woke up. After my court, uh, I went to sleep and whatever I did, and I went to sleep, and I woke up at 3 o'clock in the morning, and I I wasn't up. I mean, I was just laying there, and I just felt the strongest feeling, just like it went right down into my soul that it was the Spirit of God, is all I can describe it as. And then I got another shot that was even deeper and lasted longer. And it was like, it was like the Lord was saying to me, you haven't asked to be strengthened, but I'm going to strengthen you anyway. Hmm. That was the message. And maybe it's because I, I was then working on the Jesus book, but I felt his presence very strongly for ever since that court. And it's taken the sting out of it. And uh, people may not understand about that about me, but I am a spiritual person, and if they read The Incomparable Jesus, you will soon find that out. Hmm. Well, thanks thanks for sharing that. I know our listeners are, are, will appreciate that. Um, so so let's, let's talk briefly um, about, uh, about the church. If if we can, um, I, you know, it's it's a fair question to say, you know, is the church acting rationally? Is the church simply trying to preserve itself? You know, um, because we we know that people have left over your book. We know people have left the church. At least it, it became a, a important component in them leaving. So. Uh, a church, obviously, regardless of whether it's God's one true church or not, is going to try and preserve itself. And so it's easy for us to get all angry at the church and compare it to Galileo and whatever. And, and, and I understand that point of view. But um, is, it's fair to say, do you, do you think the church is acting rationally? And uh, you know, do you think the church is helping itself by acting this way versus uh, hurting itself? Well, you can answer on both sides of that, and I have answers for both sides of that. First of all, the church says, well, why should we make changes? And if we make too many changes and and move in the direction 
of the truth. We're going to lose a lot of people like the uh, RLDS did. They went from like 250 down to 45. Thousand, right? Thousand, yeah. And uh, they've stabilized now, but they lost a lot of folks, a lot of people. When they acknowledged that Joseph was a polygamist. Well, they've moved away from the Book of Mormon, and uh, you don't have to accept that as canon. And uh, uh, they're basically uh, have a lot of Protestant beliefs. Uh, They like my book for a textbook because that helps accelerate where they're going and uh, what have you. Uh, It's also true to say that uh, by... In, in some ways, I, I think they want to go slow. They don't quite know how to deal with this. They don't have a very good answer for it. I think they're moving to maybe more of a, this is the family church and, and more of that kind of thing. Uh, at the same time, uh, they're losing a certain amount of credibility both within the church and outside of the church by not dealing with these things. Uh, so that's another part of that answer. I think that books like mine, but especially the Internet, is, is, is bringing all of this stuff to anyone who wants to know his attention. And in three weeks, you can, you, can, you can know an awful lot about what's really going on in the Mormon past if you choose to find out. In the past, you, you had your little local friends or you had a book here and there, but now you can be, uh, you can, you can be over in England and, uh, and, and not have to even bought a book and right. you can go on there and find out all this stuff. So all this stuff that was kind of laying out there and in, in, in the past and some kind of distant past is all of a sudden current, and we're living through another war of words, so to speak, of what is truth and what isn't. Right. Now, I'm not sure that fully answered the question. No, no, definitely. But there's probably more to say on it. What was the question again exactly? Well, is the church acting rationally, and is it hurting itself or helping well, itself? Well, in the long term, it's hurting itself because this stuff is starting to get down to the 19-year-olds, and they haven't discussed this thing in seminary and institute, and our missionaries go out, and they're being handed books like Quinn's, like mine, from our own scholars, and it's it's taking its toll. Or even some, by Bushman, right? I know a person who's left the, one person who's left the church from reading Bushman. Just because he raises the issues. And I think the one of the reasons he's raising the issues is because of the Internet and books like mine and books like Quinn's and others and books like uh, uh, Todd Compton and Sacred Loneliness and, and, and so forth. I, they're having to be more open. And I say that's a good thing, not a bad thing, because I think the honorable thing to do is to deal with this stuff. And right now they prefer to distort and manipulate history. And in the long run... That's going to hurt them. Right. Um, I, do you think they're distorting and manipulating history, or are they just telling the version that they heard when they were growing up? I mean... They're, they're, they're both. Yeah. You're right. I think they just are telling the version they, they learned when they grew up. They're perpetuating and they, it. And they're perpetuating it. And it's almost like saying, we're not going to make any changes on my watch. This will have to be some someone else. But... Uh, the church is. I wrote a letter to President Thomas S. Monson, and in my court case, I had people going up through the PR end of the church to the First Presidency, and I had a letter that I know is hand delivered and read by President Monson because I got an acknowledgement back. But I just says, you know, one of the things I said was uh, 
the church is hemorrhaging right now, and by disciplining me, it's just putting a Band-Aid over it, and I think that's a good description. I mean, if the reports are anywhere accurate at all, we're, we're now experiencing ab- about zero growth in the church. About 100,000 people a year are reportedly resigning officially from the church. There's a, there's a committee headed by Greg Dodge. He used to have five members of his committee. He now has ten members, and all they do is process excommunications and resignations. And Dodge reports directly to the first presidency. Now, we can't be 100% sure of everything I just said, but it's, it sounds about right. So the, the church is, is, is hemorrhaging, and the question is, is how do you stop the bleeding? Well, one of the ways is you get a guy, a historian, with, a, with, a, with some credibility like Richard Bushman and have him put a book out there. Right. And uh, for those who slog through the book, <laughs> uh, you know, I think it will probably help the church on the whole. And I'll give Bushman credit where he's correct, but Bushman is, is not into deep analysis. He, he brings us right up to the cliff on some of these issues, and then he kind of fades away and... Uh, doesn't really continue the analysis, but he does raise the issues. And where he's right, let's give him credit. And I think it is a step in the right direction for openness. And I, I've been told by uh, by someone I trust that uh, there are some general authorities that have complained to Deseret Book because they're kind of sponsoring it, you know. And, sure, and, there's hundreds of the copies. But and they don't displays. like the book. They just wish it'd go away. Really? Yeah. And I trust that source. And more than one. And so, but they think they see the practical necessity. Things are opening up. People are, you know, are starting to understand, and a certain number are leaving. And I, I wish they'd stay in and help promote and, and make it the kind of experience we'd like to have instead of just leaving. Sure, sure. So if you were, you know, prophet for a day, and I'm not saying advise the brethren, but have you ever thought about, you know, let's just assume that these men understand the historical issues. Let's just assume they they uh, care about it and are concerned about the people leaving. What could they do? I mean, it seems like their hands are tied. If they, if they suppress it, they're digging their own graves in the long term, or at least uh, digging the grave for their credibility and for a, a a healthy portion of the church membership that are intelligent or or inclined towards uh, a curiosity or studying, they're going to lose those people. But if but if they come clean and pull a reorganized church and admit their frailties, they're going to lose seventy five percent of their membership. So, what you know? Do you do you have you even tried to process? Yes. How you would make this change? I'm glad it's not me. It has to make that decision <laughs> every time. The- the church makes a move of accommodation of one degree or another, the fundamentalists rub their hands with glee and they get new converts because that shows that the church is not the true church and they've moved away from the truth once again. Which, which fundamentalists? Ah, oh, these polygamous groups, any kind of fundamentalist off-break of the church. When the church starts changing the garments or the church starts doing anything, or letting the, the blacks the ceremony, letting, the letting blacks, blacks hold the priesthood. Anything, any time they make any kind of forward move, in my view, would be forward. That becomes fodder for proselyting for these fundamentalist right wing 
groups. They're more vulnerable than to saying, well, my church is doing some stuff I don't like, so I'm going to leave. So the growth of the FLDS church and Warren Jeffs and all that is Well, it's, it's been fueled over the years from changes, and I'm just saying that's an ongoing process. On the other hand, yeah, if you... Uh, if you if you keep moving in that direction, uh, you're going to lose more and more. Uh, if you start embracing what I'm advocating, they're going to lose some uh, some people. But I I also see, and I don't know where the hammer comes down on this, except that there's a lot of respect for the president of the church. Yeah, and I think if we just kind of quietly, you don't announce things you just quietly start moving in the direction of a more christ-centered experience i think that has to be part of it i think most of the people would follow you're going to lose some but you're gonna lose them anyway you're, you're losing them anyway right and by by not dealing with it they're starting to lose credibility because people are starting to say well if they don't know about these problems they should and how much time should we give them yeah because they've got to know what's what's going on in way of resignations and bishops and stake presidents are start, starting to say this is a problem in my area, that kind of thing. And I I've, I know at least I'm I'm uh, corresponding with a two time member of a stake presidency right now in Florida, and uh, he basically says, "Well, I'm corresponding with you because you are in the church." And I, they just told me to trust it all, and I've spent my life in service to the church, and then I find out it's not true. He says, I am angry. He used the word four times in one email. So this is beginning to hit to affect the structure of the church. And by its structure, I mean bishoprics, stake presidencies, young missionaries. That's got to be an alarm bell. Another is, is the tithing you know, slowing down. Another is our would-be 19-year-olds going in, on missions in ever-increasing numbers. And fourth is what's happening to the convert baptism rate and retention. Those are four alarm bells, and they've, they've got to know that there's, there's going to be some problems in all four of those areas eventually, and I think they're already there in a couple of them. So you don't you don't have ideas like start an advanced Sunday school where they deal with these histories, put up a big website with the fact frequently asked questions which says here's our story on the polygamy thing here's our story on polyandry here's our story on peep stones uh you know i you're 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 it's not my call and i'm glad i don't have to make it <laughs> i know richard bushman has talked to groups of missionary at least back in the new england states somebody told me he did that he had a discussion with him and brought up some of these issues but right now they do not allow any of this in seminary institute and these poor Young missionaries go out clueless. And they get clobbered. They get clobbered because books like mine and others are being read by non-LDS, and they're handing them to missionaries. And a certain number are going to break the rules and read these books. And we have more coming home. When I went out, people never came home because of uh, our history was bad. Right. <laughs> they're certainly doing it today. Hmm. So you don't have any good suggestions. You just think it's a tough situation. I think it's their call, and I wish them all the luck in the world. But I think the honorable thing to do is to deal with this and move on. Every organization has a history. And I think my one suggestion is to just don't make any grandstanding. Just quietly move in the direction of a more Christ-centered experience. And 
and I say that at the end of my Jesus book, I think this is, in light of these foundational problems, I think taking a couple of giant steps to a more focused experience on Jesus Christ at the local level of the church is certainly some one thing I would do. So, I don't see that happening yet on the local level, by the way. Sure. Well, let's let's spend at least you know let's spend ten minutes on on your uh, incomparable Jesus, and then we'll end up by sort of ten minutes on on where you're at today. Okay. So you're, it seems like the premise in your incomparable Jesus book is that Jesus necessarily isn't the focus of our worship these days. Sometimes you want to elaborate on that a bit. I, you know, I don't wish to be adversarial about it. I just think that we can improve in that area greatly. And, and some of that has to come from the top. It's not just individual. I wrote this book for the incomparable Jesus for individuals to, to have information about Jesus Christ that they, they would share. Either I would just encourage people when they bear their testimony, when they sing, when they preach, when they, when they teach, that to, that to think of introducing a little more of, of uh, the life and ministry of Jesus. If you break down the meetings, the sacrament meeting is, uh, is designed to, to remember him, the sacramental prayers, and yet we don't have a lot of... We, we, we mention Jesus Christ in the sacrament service, but we don't talk about his life and ministry very much. Right. And if you go 52 times in a year, 52 Sundays, and actually keep track of this, as I know some people have, they would they'd pretty well confirm that. We drop his name. We close in the name of Christ. We, our hymns, sacrament hymns, are usually centered around Christ. But the preaching and the teaching is where it starts to break down, I think. Uh, I, think we could in, I think we could improve this spirit in our meetings if we would, would talk more about... Uh, the life and ministry of Jesus. What typically happens is a bishop will say, now next Sunday, brother so-and-so, I want you to speak on love or forgiveness or or faith, and then they do that. They talk about the principle. But if they, but principles are more inspiring when they're attached to a person anyway. Well, we do attach them to people, but we just attach them to general authority quotes. Yes. But a lot of our, our and so, and so, we don't we don't get a lot of that. The other thing is we get a lot of what I call institutional beliefs and organizational needs emphasized in the sacrament meeting. And so it's very easy for 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 a person to uh it's very easy for three months of Sacrament means to go something like this. Well, this week we're going to talk about food storage preparation. And the next week we'll have something on genealogy. And the next week we'll have a missionary report. And the next week we'll have something on the primary. And the next week will be Mother's Day. And the, and the week after that we'll have, have something on, uh, um, you know, Joseph Smith or something about... Or the uh, priesthood or, or one priesthood. church. Or, yeah. or the importance of ordinances yeah. or... Right, and so you stand back three months have gone by, and you say, "What happened to Jesus Christ here?" <laughs> and he fell through the cracks. That's what happened to him. Right. I think we could, we could, in, if we, if the bishop would say, "Now here's a here's a little text on love," and start out with talking about this incident in Jesus' life or something about Jesus, and then let them do whatever they want. I think that would help. I think having the sacrament last. 
in the service, uh, the sacrament service itself within the the sacrament meeting, and especially when you've been talking about Christ, I think it would reinforce the sacrament. I think we could do more to bring the presence of Christ in our meetings by uh, talking about the importance of the sacrament. And in my experience, we talk a lot about if you want the Spirit, go to the temple, go to the temple, go to the temple. And David O. McKay talked a lot about the sacrament, and Russell Nelson has too, Elder Nelson, and there may be others. But it seems to be kind of, we don't hear, you know, how that really relates and focused on that. I'd like to see more done on some of the holidays, uh, Easter, for example, uh, why not talk about the last week of Christ's life, the Sunday before Easter, and then on Easter talk about Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, the Good Friday and the, and the Resurrection. I think we could do more with holidays. I think, I think we could enhance our understanding of Jesus if they'd allow the new interna- international version of the Bible to be used instead of just the King James for, for teaching especially. Uh, I think you could readjust the core the core uh, curriculum, so to speak, in Sunday school. Uh, once every four years for about four months, we talk about the four Gospels. That's it. And we move on to the epistles. Um, and then uh, it's Old Testament, you know, the years Old Testament, yeah. Book of Mormon, which is some Christ, but uh, also has. Right. You could reconfigure that. I mean, just one idea, and this is just thrown out, is you could take is the core text, Matthew one year, teach Matthew, and then if you if the if the core topic or, or the supplementary would be say the Old Testament and plug plug in examples of that principle that Jesus is teaching in Matthew. Is yeah. that clear? Sure. And then next year Mark and next year Luke and next year John. So and, do and, deep and, dives in the New Testament. Yeah, deep, of, so so you get it more often, and yet you could bring in Old Testament examples that illustrate that principle right. found in Matthew, and the Book of Mormon in St. Mark, and the Doctrine and Covenants in Luke, and uh, or even the Book of Mormon teachings sure, about Christ. Sure, and, and focus more on that. Right now, we have twenty-four lessons in the Sunday school um, about. And, and and I've added that up. Well, no, I'm not. Excuse me. I'm on the Priesthood Relief Society now. In the last nine years, they've had the teachings of modern prophets, and I, I added those lessons up for the first eight years. It's in the Incomparable Jesus. It's 192 lessons, and uh, I only found about 20 of those out of 192 that directly relate with Jesus Christ. Right. So as a result of that. If you ask LDS people, active LDS people, tell me about the briefest overview of Jesus's ministry or Joseph Smith's ministry. They say, "Well, 1820, 23, 27, 29, 30. That's New York. And then he went to Ohio, Missouri, Illinois, and he's martyred." Do that for Jesus, right? <laughs> see what see what you get, right? We're talking about active LDS. They'll say, "Well, let's see. He was born in uh, Bethlehem, <laughs> and at twelve he went down to the." They they really can't say he had a ministry in Galilee. They went to the upper Gentile area. Then he went down to Judea, over to Priya, and then Holy Week. It's just that simple. But they, they can't do that. <laughs> right. And that, there's a reason for it. I think. Yeah. And and I'm just saying we can improve on this. I'm not. I'm not. I, I just would ask people how central is your study and worship of Jesus Christ, the person, and and that's the focus of the Jesus book. Is let's take a look at what Jesus is really saying. Now, I went through there, and I found 29 places where Jesus said, 
Come unto me. And it always ends in me. Look unto me. Abide in me. Uh, testify of me. Uh, look unto me. I mean, 29 different ways of saying that. And mm-hmm. so I really think that he probably would like us to focus more on him. And I take a look at Jesus Christ, the man. What is he really like? He's asked us to follow us. And he says, if you do so, you'll end up in the city of God with me and my Father. I believe him. Mm-hmm. And a person could probably ask, well, what more do you need? And I don't want to go there. <laughs> right. But a person could say, does it really matter that there was an apostasy and a restoration? We've got Jesus Christ, and he says, if you follow me and you take upon yourself my divine nature, that you'll be with my Father and God in the city of God as described in the last two chapters of the book of Revelation. Wow, that's an interesting thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in the Sunday school, four months every four years, Priesthood Relief Society, um, not very much. Yeah. It centers around 24 lessons, and yeah. most of those are institutional needs and organizational yeah. Needs or beliefs. There are a lot of people I, I talked to who were very frustrated about the emphasis on Joseph Smith this past Christmas. Mm. Um, uh, some people felt like that was a very disproportionate to the importance we should be paying. But So I, I think it's a, it's a very important uh, message you're conveying in the incomparable in Jesus. And I uh, recommend the book to all the listeners out there. Well, uh, thank you. And uh, as my stake president says, does it bother you they're having all this uh, attention to Joseph Smith? And I says, well, I just wish they'd give Jesus equal time. That's my answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's hope that we can help make that happen. So, Well, it, it, it is. It's an appeal to individuals to do their part. And, but some of this is going to have to come from the top. But I think in lieu of our difficulties with the foundational claims, this would be, a, this would be the direction I would like to see the church move and our members can help that out it seems to me well let's let's then conclude by talking about you and and how your feelings today uh i got several emails from people who who wanted to ask you lots of mormons who who uh, whose testimonies wither because of their concerns about history and the foundational claims very soon after god and, and jesus fall for them too and so a lot of people wanted me to ask you, why why have you abandoned the the validity or the truthfulness or the historicity of, of the Mormon origins, but you've clung to Christ? Yes, that's a common statement by people. If you applied the same test to Jesus as you do Joseph, uh, you'd have the same result. I, I respectfully disagree with that. I I've seen the literature. I've read the literature. I I don't I don't agree. First of all, I would say we have a plethora of documents on Joseph Smith to evaluate him. We have letters and and, and just archives full of material. What do we have about Jesus? We well, we have a few secular historians and, and who who mentioned that Jesus lived. Not much about him. We have the four Gospels. We do not have his any interviews of him healing lepers or. Please tell me your account of seeing the resurrected Christ. We don't have that. What we've got is the four Gospels. So I don't know that you can even begin to apply a historical test to Jesus uh, like you can with Joseph Smith. 
Now, there are some things you can do. Uh, I Take the resurrection doctrine, for example. Uh, people say, well, it looks to me like there is a short ending of Mark 16 after verse 8 or 9, and uh, it just abruptly ends there, and there's no example of the resurrection. Therefore, when Luke and Matthew come along, they simply uh, they make it more impressive. And when John comes along, it even gets more impressive. Right. Uh, that that's one way to look at it. Another way would be say, well, Mark certainly believed that Christ was going to resurrect. Look at chapter eight and nine of Mark. He he fully believes that Christ is going to resurrect. And half the scholars think that the the, the last page of Mark was somehow mutilated, and the the other half think it just plain ended there. And and they like that developing, evolving thesis. Um, when you get to the resurrection material. Luke seems to have his own sources. Matthew has his, and uh, and uh, it's. It, I don't I don't know where they're getting it from, from eyewitnesses or interviews or what, but uh, they don't use the same language as each other. Then John comes along, and John, the Gospel of John, is like ninety two percent different from Matthew, Mark, or Luke, and we have some evidence. It's late by Clement, second third century. He says, well, John kind of, he knew about Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and he just says, well, that's, uh, they're complete as far as they go, but here's some material that they left out, and he goes into John or, or you know, that kind of thing. Uh, but before any of the four Gospels are written, Paul is talking about the resurrection. He's doing so 20 years after Christ rose from the dead in 33 A.D. In 53, 4 A.D., in Corinthians, he's saying, uh, listen, uh, Christ appeared to more than 500 people at once, and most of them are still alive. And if you don't believe me, you go talk to them. You can get your own story on the resurrected Christ. And I'm sure Paul had done knowing his the way I think he is. Uh, so I don't see, I see the, the resurrection idea early. It's physical, literal, and it remains that way throughout the New Testament. I don't see an involvement there. Now, I'll come back to the question again because there's... So you're, it sounds like your faith in a literal Jesus and in a and a Jesus as Son of God and Savior is firmly rooted and intact. There's no question that the birth narratives are, are have problems. Uh, and there's... Well, there's several things that we could say here, but yes, I, I believe in the resurrection. That's the one thing for me that has to stand up. One of the church problems we have in the LDS church is that We've tied so much of our faith to historical events or alleged historical events. If you want to be baptized, you've got to believe in the literal historicity of the Book of Mormon. You've got to believe in the first vision. You've got to believe in the priesthood restoration. You've got to believe in, in, in these different items. And I think that as time is going on and, and those things are becoming more and more up in the air and questionable, that that's I think we ought to evaluate our membership on how central they are spiritually and morally in Christ, and uh, and not by these evolving, uh, controversial, increasingly impressive, unique, and miraculous accounts that we have in the in the in the uh, our church tradition. But Christianity is is cleverly moved away even from you don't even have to accept the resurrection. It's about faith and. Jesus Christ. It's not about anything that happened historically back way back when. All right. So why why not just uh, join your local, you know, Unitarian Universalist Church? Why not 
become an evangelical? Why have you remained and, and desire to remain within the church? Well, remember I mentioned to you earlier in our interview that I've always had a little bit of the reformer in me. The church is good to me in my youth. A lot of who I am is because of those teachings. And in some areas, I'd give them an A, and in others, I'd give them a D. Right. When you talk about Boy Scouts, that's or youth programs, or finances, or care for the members, or the social community, very high marks. When we talk about Jesus, maybe a D. There's an area to improve in. But there's a little bit of the reformer in me. I just I'd like to see this. This is my people. This is not. This is a a, a birth to death religion. It's not just a one hour experience on Sunday, as you know. You grew up in the faith, and uh, these are my people. I, they go way back. Uh, I would like to see a more Christ-centered experience. If that doesn't happen, then there's not a lot over there for me. And in a few years, if nothing changes, I probably will drop out. Mm. But you're still holding out hope that changes will be made. And that- yes, and it's probably naive, but I want to give them the time. I'm not. That's not said in any threatening way. It's just there's not much over there for me is the way I see it. And uh, I just think that Eventually, this is they've got to come to terms with this stuff, and uh, I'm willing to wait for a while rather than just give it up. There's there's a little bit of a reformer in me. Is there? I'd like. That's one reason I wrote the book. Is this? Is that, let's move in that direction anyway. It wouldn't hurt, regardless of whether the foundations have problems. I think we could have a more Christ-centered experience, and it, and it would benefit all the members. And do you fear that uh, by being vocal now? you might uh, come up in front of a disciplinary council again for the final blow? Yes, I'm concerned about that, but I, uh, I've i tried to be responsible in who I've talked to and uh, in the settings I've talked with people. Um, I, I hope that... Uh, I hope that things will become more open and they will the church's umbrella is one of the decisions they've got to decide and they they have one are we going to open the umbrella on the polygamy issue are we going to open the umbrella on the blacks issue are we going to open the umbrella on on our foundational history and maybe that's the biggest one of all because mm-hmm. that could be very very threatening Mm-hmm. But I think it's got to happen. It's going to happen, whether it's with me or without me or, or people like me. I think the, the forward march of this is, is, is evident. And I just think that we're, we could be mature enough in a church that we can. there's room for people like me in it. Right. I don't know they're going to make me a bishop. No, <laughs> I wouldn't want to be one anyway, I don't believe. But... As more and more of this comes out, they've got to be a little more accommodating, or they can not not enlarge the umbrella and just shut us out. Right. That's a decision they have to face. That's their decision. I, I think it's not an easy one, and I do empathize with their decision. For me, it's not that difficult. I think you just tell the truth and let the consequences follow. Yeah. And there will be consequences, and I think they feel responsible for those consequences, but there's consequences now. 
And the the fact of the matter is that we have families that are being torn up, and this will go through much of the church. Someone in their family is finding this out, and they move away from the church, or they have different views. And with my family, that occurred, and I got them all together, and I says, look, our love and connection and bond is, is more important than the interpretation of a religious view. And it hasn't worked entirely, but it's worked well enough that it's a very good start towards that. The outcome I have in my family might even be a minority outcome because a lot of families are being torn apart. And that will it's just on the cusp, on the edge of this. This is just getting started. This isn't midway through this process. We're just getting started on the new Mormon history penetrating people's lives. Yeah. So uh, just to close, we have a lot of listeners out there, probably over a 1,000 listeners now. What would you say to these people who also know this history, who also feel sympathies or, um, you know, understand this point of view, or maybe are listening for the first time. Do you offer any uh, ideas of encouragement or hope or suggestions or any words of advice or counsel to people who are struggling with this for the first time? Well, it's very devastating. It's the hardest thing that ever happened in my life. It was harder than my three surgeries of cancer and six months of chemo and six weeks of radiation. It was harder than losing my sweetheart wife in 92, who I love dearly. This has been devastating to a person who's gone through this journey. And many people will go through this journey. I would hope that the church leaders could ease that burden somewhat and be find a way to make it a little easier and, and open the umbrella and discuss this and somehow move on. I think moving to Christ is the answer for, for me and what I'd like to see happen. But every every individual is going to do their own thing and have their own take on this. And it wouldn't hurt for the church to change some of its social control. A lot of people are really upset with the control that comes with with all this, the good part of it. And they're probably right. Um, So what what do you tell people? I'm I'm a little discouraged right now. I, I, I would like to see... The church at the local level just quietly move more centered in Christ. I don't see that happening. I think it's the logical way to go in light of these problems and the family. Um, I, I don't know what to tell listeners. It's Everyone has their own take and journey and speed even on this and what, what they're comfortable in, of doing. Obviously, a lot of people are saying, done this. Seen it. It's not what I was told. I was told that it was a Cadillac in the driveway, and it turns out to be a motor scooter, and I'm out of here. Right. Yeah. So I guess if there were ever a time for uh, inspiration and direct revelation, now's the time to, to find a solution to this dilemma. I think so, and I'm and as you notice in the front of my, my the insider's view, I'm really calling for a reassessment like B.H. Roberts called for it in the early 1920s. It's too bad it wasn't done then when we were a very, very small church. Now our problem is greatly aggravated. 
And uh, I just think it's the honorable thing to do. I'm going to keep mentioning that word. It's the only honorable thing to do is to deal deal with this stuff. I'm, I've given my idea of how to do that. I think I would just quietly become a more Christ-centered church. I wouldn't make any grandstand statements, and I think most of the church members will simply follow. And I think it will be a better church for it. And I think we'll get rid of some of that baggage and begin to move and have more success in the missionary work. And bring more people to Christ. Yes. Well, Grant Palmer, I can't thank you enough for spending these three, four hours uh, telling your story. It's an honor to be in your home, and I admire you for your courage and strength. I've received several emails from people who asked me to pass on to you. Um, their appreciation for what they see to be a lot of courage and, and uh, honesty and integrity. I'm sure they're detractors as well, uh, but I'll side with, uh, with those who respect you for your honesty and your courage and your willingness to talk openly. So thank you for coming on Mormon Stories. Thank you. It's a privilege to be here. And we'd like to thank all of you once again for tuning in to Mormon Stories podcast. We'd like to remind you again that we've uh, extended an invitation to FAIR, the Apologetics Mormon Group, to uh, respond uh, to the portions of this podcast dealing with Mormon origins. They've accepted that invitation, and so uh, through John Lynch, we look forward to uh, bringing someone on from FAIR to give an apologetic perspective on, on these issues of Mormon origins. So we look forward to that very much. We hope you'll tune in. In addition, we'd like to thank you for... All your emails at mormonstories at gmail.com. Please keep them coming. Also, thank you for the blog posts at mormonstories.org. Please uh, come up there and visit us and let us know what you think. And finally, again, thanks to all of you who have taken the time to donate to Mormon Stories up on mormonstories.org. Your donations uh, definitely help keep this program running. So with that, we want to thank you again, wish you all the best, and we look forward to talking to you soon. Take care and goodbye. It's sinking down The treasure I'd almost found Is gone I had been holding on so my heart and soul All of that weight in gold and dreams A man that I thought I should be I had to let
It's my time to fly.